from the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. This is MindWise. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in again. I am Marco and here with me are Javo and Tassa Sarampalis. Javo and I are psychology students of the University of Groningen and Tassas is our lecturer for the current course on research ethics. Research methods. Yes. Ethics are part of it, but it's just one part. Okay, so today we will be talking about ethics and everything tangentially related. So first of all, thank you to all the students who engaged us in stimulating discussions. And today, and also hopefully in upcoming podcasts, we will address these questions and issues that arose. But before we go deeper into them, let's start a bit more broadly. You mentioned during the lecture that research ethics is your favorite topic. Why is that? Well, research ethics is uh, one of my favorite topics in the course and also in, um, in, the, in the general field of research methodology because the way I think about it, the way I, I try to make decisions about all the things that I do Uh, when I do my research or when I make decisions about how to advise people or when I make decisions about how to mentor students. For me, it's all about going back to the very core values that I consider to be very important and I consider to be very central in the act of doing science and doing research. And it's for that reason that I think research ethics is, is so interesting for me and it's so um, central in everything that I want to discuss in the research methods course. So to give you an example, you always get into little dilemmas about choices. It's all, research is all about making small or large choices. And very often, the way I make decisions about this, the way I make decisions about these choices, is by looking back at what it is that drives me to do research and what it is that I consider to be valuable. Um, and the example of open science is, is, a, is a good one. When I consider openness in science is simultaneously challenging and also very rewarding. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to share all your data. It's difficult to share your entire thought process. You really become very vulnerable uh, when you consider sharing the entire process and the entire logic of, of making decisions in your research project. And it's tempting to say, well, I don't want to share all of this because it leaves me... Um, let's say vulnerable, it leaves me open for criticism also. But it's in remembering that ultimately your goal in research is to come up with some sort of answer that is uh, interesting, not just to yourself, but also to your colleagues and, uh, and the public at large, that you start being reminded of the fact that openness, open science, open access, all of those initiatives are very valuable. So in that respect, And it's also in terms of when I teach research methods, one of the, you know, I can teach you rules and I can tell you, teach you about biases and different methodologies, but they're always going to be limited. There's always so much that you can learn in a course. And perhaps for me, the most interesting thing is to teach you the values and the core aspects that surround science uh, to help you make decisions in new situations and, to, and uh, uncharted territories. And that's why I like ethics. Hmm. So when a researcher shares her data, one of the things she has to face is often a peer review by colleagues. Is that right? That's right. So typically the process is that 
once you complete your manuscript, it gets sent to a journal for peer review and the, your manuscript and your work gets reviewed by a panel of peers, a panel of colleagues, a panel of experts. Okay, I would like to talk about the details of that for a little while. So during the lecture, you mentioned that if a researcher takes part in the peer reviewing process, he or she is not paid for that, is that right? That's correct. Okay, so if quality control seems to be such an essential aspect of the scientific process, why isn't there a better incentive structure for peer review? Well, the incentive structure of peer review is in the community structure of science itself. My incentive for providing my own peer review to other people's publication is very much in line with what I talked about earlier, these values that we have in, in science. I do peer review not because it's beneficial to me, but it's because it's beneficial to science. It's beneficial for my field. So that is my incentive system. And it's also built into the life of the academic. It's understood that we all engage in peer review, and that's sort of part of my job. How many researchers think like you, though? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure. I don't know what I can tell you. I know that peer review is a... Uh, is challenging because the more you publish, the more you get asked to review other other manuscripts, and it, it does take away from your own um, work time. And then it's up to every individual to make decisions about how, how much time to allocate to scientific community projects. We also review grant applications. We take part in, um, in panels and conferences. Um, all sorts of other uh, activities that we don't directly get paid for. So you we consider that yeah. to be part of our job. Okay. So your reason for peer reviewing is so intrinsic that the process in itself gratifies you. However, I could imagine that still implementing some sort of financial incentive structure would still benefit the process. As you say, many researchers might not have the time to do it and what do you think about that? Would, would that be a liable option? Well, the, the problem with getting paid for doing things like this is that you get into conflict of interest issues where you provide your review for personal benefit. And that, I think, is against the values that surround peer review itself. That these are reviews that are free of prejudice and uh, even engaging in peer review in a way that is free of biases and free of any conflict of interest. Would you say that uh, peer reviewing uh, has more benefits outside of, let's say, the, the community benefits and, and developing science, but more like personal benefits for you, like learning more about research absolutely. by doing it? And has it helped you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, engaging in, in peer review and engaging in uh, grant uh, application reviews um, is enormously beneficial because you get to see how other people conduct their work. Yeah. Um, uh, you get to also be active in the way that your field is shaped. So it's a learning experience in working with the editors, in looking at the other reviews, and also in learning uh, what's very much up to date in your field. Okay, I would slightly shift gears here and talk about the evolution of the ethical guidelines within our research field and also the criticism that has arisen over the last, well, right from the onset of the publication of the first ethical guidelines. And I would like to quote one critic. This is Kenneth Gurgen, 
Most of us have encountered studies that arouse moral indignation. We do not wish to see such research carried out in the profession. However, the important question is whether the principles we establish to prevent these few experiments from being conducted may not obviate the vast majority of contemporary research. We may be mounting a very dangerous cannon to shoot a moose. So that criticism was voiced almost 40 years ago. Do you think that today's guidelines are too stringent and might potentially impede important research? Well, I think it's always a balance in coming up with rules and guidelines um, that are supportive of the of the goals of science and at the same time protective of the rights of the individual and um, protective of the values of the, of the field itself. It is true that it's an evolving field still. It's always going to be evolving and we're always going to be looking for that good balancing point of making, uh, of facilitating research uh, while preserving our um, ethical, what we consider to be ethical uh, practices. And it's going to always continue evolving. We're not going to reach that balance because that balance always keeps moving uh, with our new understanding of ethical practices, with new technologies, with new procedures, um, and just new knowledge of how humans behave. Okay. During the lecture last week, you mentioned something that sparked a discussion between our students, and you briefly mentioned the ideal attitude of a researcher, what that could be, and how a researcher's ideal behavior could look like. Now, I would like to ponder with you over this ideal attitude of a researcher a little bit more and also about scientific integrity. So an ideal attitude might be one of selflessness that allows the researcher to value the development of her own research field more than that of her personal gains. However, someone argued last week that the structure of academia isn't very conducive to developing this attitude because the researcher's own personal achievements that maybe publications or other things are prerequisite for staying within the academic system in the first place. So what we commonly call a successful researcher might be someone with a lot of published papers that have a high impact factor. Now earlier online, it only took me a couple of minutes to find a website, a comprehensive website that offered this very descriptive advice on how to artificially inflate your high impact factor. And if we go to an institutional level even, it may be even harder to find an attitude of selflessness. Universities are extremely interested in the international ranking and it attracts students, funds, experts, etc. So there seems to be a lot of competitiveness going on. And also our university obviously boasts about our ranking on its homepage. And the ranking procedure in itself, again, is based very much on a university's reputation um, as judged by researchers from other universities. So all that seems very subjective. So someone naively may ask, could it be that the current academic environment and the idealized researcher are mutually exclusive? And what should a student make out of all this information coming towards her? Well, Marco, I think you answered your own question in this um in this way, I think you're absolutely right. All the information that you've included in your question is information that I was rehearsing in my head as you were asking it in terms of my answer. Uh, when I talked about the ideal attitude, let's say, 
um, it is an ideal attitude. It's and it's also a sort of personal opinion, um, or it's 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 my view on what I think the ideal attitude should be. Uh, I don't know that it is uh, the perfect attitude to have in this particular environment uh, in order to become successful. But at the same time, I can ask you uh, in return about the definition of the concept of success. You know, success is a loaded term. Uh, you can succeed in many different ways. And again, it falls back on that set of values. So for me, success is... Um, is not about having a huge number of publications, even though I know that the current academic environment rewards that very heavily, more than more heavily than uh, a lot of other aspects of being a researcher. So I don't want to make a judgment to say that this is success and something else is not success. I think it's up to the individual to make some of these decisions for uh, herself. And it is, it is a, certainly a difficult environment. What I can tell you is something more factual uh, rather than opinionated, and that is in, um, in the recent development, the universities also acknowledge this. I, we acknowledge, and academics in general, acknowledge the fact that these are very coarse measures of individual success. And we acknowledge the fact that, you know, the tenure track system rewards personal success over the, let's call it the success of science, the success of the field. And I think to some extent this is desirable. You want people who are motivated. You also want to reward individual efforts. Um, but in understanding that these measures of impact factors and number of publications um, being very coarse in how you make a decision about somebody's value in the, in the field, universities and academic institutions and grant agencies have also started slowly considering uh, new ways of assessing individual success in terms of engagement with the public, in terms of quality of publications rather than just the quantity of the publications and other things like that. Again, it's one of those aspects that will continue evolving and I think we are in a pretty interesting time in science at the moment where the rate at which these things change is faster than before. So I'm more interested to see what happens than um, sort of judging what is happening. Yes, and I think it's very important for an undergraduate student to expose herself to many different opinions that also academics Absolutely. hold and how they define success and sort of feel what resonates with your own intuition about how you want to define it. One more thing we would like to address is internet-based research, which is here to stay. The online participant is very different from the one in whose interests our initial ethical guidelines were developed. And like we saw with last year's controversial Facebook study, sometimes people might not even be aware that they are or become a participant. So is there any authority currently who has a say in what's ethical for online research? Or is this still something we would have to develop right now? I think these, um, uh, these notions of what it means to be an online participant are still very much developing also what it's like to be an online citizen, that understanding is rapidly developing. I'm happy to have grown at a time where I could be as embarrassing as I wanted and I knew that it wasn't going to end up on Facebook <laughs> or on Twitter, also because nobody had cameras with them all the time uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. back then. And I, I'm mindful of educating my daughter, who is currently four, on the concept of privacy, especially in an online um, platform. 
in this sense of anonymity of the internet, we end up relinquishing a lot of information about us that we wouldn't j normally do in a in a non-online uh, public setting. And I know, for example, that there is research. Um, currently, I think you would consider it ethical to collect data from public online forums because this is like public behavior. It would be the same as being in a public square and observing people's yeah. behavior. As long as it's publicly available, it's wouldn't shouldn't be a problem. Well, it depends what you mean by problem. In that sense, it's. I think it would be acceptable by current ethical guidelines, whether it's a problem or not, that's for us to continue defining. Mm. We have to strike a balance between um, anonymity and allowing people to behave normally online or, or offline and do our research. So again, it goes to, to making decisions about the relative um, weight of the different values that you have. Before wrapping up this podcast, Javor, do you want to shoot a couple of rapid-fire questions? Yes, we have Brussels? three of them again. And yeah. uh, well, the first one is, what do you think are two movies every psychology student must see? To be honest, I'll tell you two movies that I think are good, and it doesn't matter if it's for psychology students or not. I'm still a huge fan of The Fight Club, and uh, on the complete other end of the spectrum, a... Um, a movie called Uncle Boon Me. Uncle? Uncle Boon Me. B-O-O-N-M-E-E. -E. Okay. So. Or I think the full title is Uncle Mo Boon Me Recalls His Past Lives. It's a really very beautiful and sweet movie. I suggest you all watch it. Okay. Okay. Um, next question. If you could choose anyone, who would you like to collaborate with on a research project? Who would I like to collaborate with on a research project? You know, I've always been a huge fan of Daniel Kahneman's, if not for only the clarity of his thinking and his writing, but also the the, the breadth of his knowledge and experience. So I would um, I would go with Danny for that. Okay. And um, if you couldn't have chosen psychology, in what other academic field would you have envisioned a career? Other academic field? Can I choose a non-academic field? I think in academia, yes, really, yes. psychology is uh, is still very much my my passion. So, what other field would you? I'm afraid I'd probably be a cook. A cook? Not very surprising. Not very surprising. Yeah, maybe so. It's it's. I talk about food quite a lot. So yes, I I think I would see myself behind a stove in a in a hot kitchen at some point. Okay. So with that, um, thank you again for doing this. Hope thank to you. see you next week for the next podcast. You will. Yeah, well, I well, guess you will be here as well. I guess so. Until well. next time. Bye. Bye-bye. If you have feedback concerning this episode or want your own questions to be featured in upcoming podcasts, please send us an email at mindwise.org.nl. This podcast was a production of Mindwise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen. I did a little, little bit more louder.